0: Hey, good morning. morning. You know, this past week, one of our uh, precious members of this church posted some things about the church and about me uh, that was so kind on Facebook, and uh, it just reminded me that uh, I I love my church. Like, I just love my church. Like, I, I just want you to know that the staff and the pastors love this church. You know, I deal with and meet with pastors all the time, and these last 23 months has been really hard uh, on on churches and on pastors. It's been super discouraging, and I'm so thankful to be part of a church where uh, the ministry of the church doesn't stop uh, when it comes to the staff and to the pastors and elders. Uh, but we have a ministry of care for all of our people, and I'm just grateful for a uh Uh, Elder team and a staff team that loves one another and a church that, uh, that we get to be a part of just like you get to be. So, uh, that was last week talking about the church. That's not the topic of our message this morning, but I just felt like it needed to be said. And, and, uh, you know, this week we are in week five of this series called Unapologetic, which would make a great tattoo, right? Make a great (laughs) tattoo right there in case you want it. Uh, this week and next week we're gonna be talking about what it looks like to be, unapologetic about self and about sin, especially what the Bible has to say about self and about sin. And over the last few weeks, what we've seen is, first of all, that Christ is the one who defines the Christian. Christ defines the Christian. That should go without saying, I mean, the one from whom we derive our name has the right and authority to tell us to define what it means to walk with Him. Christ defines the Christian. We've also seen that uh, God defines Himself. That is so key. God is the one who defines Himself. As we said in that message, you need to understand that everything we know about God, that's true. Like There's a lot of things people know about God that aren't true, but everything we know about God that is true is because God in His grace has chosen to reveal it to us either through natural revelation creation or special revelation the word of god and in light of that as pastor michael talked about like my experience and and my opinion always has to yield to the word of God. My opinion, my emotions, my, like my thoughts, my experience, my hopes and dreams are not the rule the word of God is. In fact, that's what it means to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We take all of our ideas, all of our opinions, all of our just personal beliefs, and we place them willingly and lovingly under the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how we renew our minds. And then last week we talked about how Christ defines His church. I mean, after all, it's His assembly. It's His body. It's His family. It's His bride. And it's His church. And He has the right and He has the authority to define it and even to name it. Like as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see God just naming people. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes like Israel. Like God has the right to name things because they belong to Him. He is the owner. He is the authority. He is the Creator. God is the definer. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. God is the definer. Let me explain it this way. Growing up in Atlanta, uh, the uh, youngest of 13 children on Saturdays, we would get up, me and my older brothers, I have eight older brothers and four older sisters, we would get up and we would, uh, if we were lucky, we would be the first group of folks who would arrive at the baseball field down the highway. Because if you were the first people on the field, you got to own it for that day, like it was yours. Like you got to set the rules, you got to uh, pick the teams, And that, like, that was great because we were there first. But we need to understand God is the definer. God made the field. Like God made the players. Like God made the rules and God is the one who defines the game. God defines our very lives. In Romans chapter 11, at the end of 11 chapters on the grace of God, 11 chapters on the glorious Gospel, 11 chapters on our sinfulness, both irreligious and religious, our lostness and need for a Savior and God's just incredible gift of Christ to us. At the end of that, Paul just kind of bursts into praise and he says this, "...for who has known the mind of the Lord?" Or who has been His counselor? Now it's a rhetorical question, but the answer, of course, is no one. In fact, He's drawing from Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40 it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand are marked off the heavens with a span of His hand. Like a span is the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. Like God looks at all of the heavens and says, yeah, that's... Just about right. Who has measured the heavens in the span of His hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who gave Him counsel? Who did He consult? Who gave Him understanding and taught Him The paths of justice. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And picking up on this, Paul just says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. We're left really dumbstruck. We're like, Job at the end of the book of Job where he has been railing against his so-called friends and even just spent chapter after chapter defending his own righteousness and then near the end of the book, God finally speaks and Job shuts up. As God begins to question him, Job offers no answers because there are no answers. Hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? when i spread out the heavens when i gave each star a name and so just like job we answer quietly silently in an unspoken way lord no one who has ever given to me that i have to pay him back i mean paul later says in 1 corinthians 4 what do you have that you have not been given like what do you have church I mean, your very breath is given to you by God. Your ability to bring it into your lungs, those lungs that God designed. Like all of us are takers. Only God is the Maker. And so Paul concludes, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You see, God is the definer. Like God is the Creator of everything. And as a result, He is sovereign over His creation. Like when we as you know, pastors, as preachers, talk about the sovereignty of God, what we mean is this. It means that God alone has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do whatever He chooses with His creation. That's what it says in Psalm 115 where the psalmist writes, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Why? Because God is the definer. And can I just tell you, if we will embrace that truth, it will simplify our lives. It will certainly simplify our personal decisions. Remember, we've been saying throughout this series that all of your life, is a test of your loyalty to Jesus Christ. Like all of your life is a test of your loyalty to Christ. Every decision, every opportunity, every temptation, every trial, every heartache, and every blessing is a test of your loyalty to Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a it's a lordship test is really what it comes down to. Like that's what it is. It's a lordship test. And the only correct answer to a lordship test is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Like I don't know what you're calling me to do. I don't know where you want me to go. But if you're saying it, I'm doing it. I'm going. Like I've joked before that if the Bible says that men should wear, thou shalt wear a baby bonnet. Like I would be hating life wearing a baby bonnet, but guess what? I would go baby bonnet shopping this afternoon. Okay? Because I know that God knows more than I know. Like He is smarter than me. He knows the path of life. I only know the path of death. I only know the path that He found me on. And so all of life is a lordship test and the only correct answer to a lordship question is yes, yes. Lord, because God is the definer. He is the sovereign. And that means, hear this, that God defines me. And God defines you. And we're going to talk about that next week. But God as the definer also means this that God defines right from wrong. Like God's the one who sets the rules. God's the one who makes the boundaries for us. And we need to understand that as believers, we get this, that every command of God, even those negative commands that just war against our heart, every command of God is for our good and for His glory. In fact, behind every command of God, even the negative ones, are three positives. God intends those commands to protect us. Because the path of death is a path of destruction. And He intends those commands to provide for us, to put our feet on level ground and lead us to Him. And ultimately, these commands are meant to proclaim that Jesus is enough. When you face a trial or a temptation, Jesus is enough. And so that's the positive side of the right from wrong. But what about the wrong? What about sin? The New City Catechism, which a lot of our younger parents are doing with their kids. Question 16 asks this question, what is sin? And the answer is just, I I think, incredible. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created. Rebelling against Him by living without reference to him, not being or depending on doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and disintegration, the disintegration of all creation. That thought that sin is living without reference to God. I'm the one who defines the terms. I'm the one who defines right from wrong. I'm the one who gets to choose. And the result is not just death. But the unraveling of creation? The decreation of creation? R.C. Sproul explained it this way in his classic, The Holiness of God. He writes, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the One to whom we owe everything to the One who has given us life itself. Like we've seen this kind of ingratitude just played out a little bit within our culture. Every time I see a video of someone burning an American flag, I have this thought, you can do that. Because that flag allows for it. Like the Constitution behind that flag allows for that display. That level of freedom of speech, I don't agree with it, but you're able to do it, but it is a sign of supreme ingratitude. Guys, magnify that by a billion and that's how we live out our lives in this world. Without reference to God. And so Sproul asked this question in his book. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of even the slightest sin? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, Your law is not good. My judgment is better than Yours. Your authority does not apply to Me. I am above and beyond Your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what You've commanded me to do see, guys, God is the one who defines right from wrong. I mean, not churches. Not even church councils at their best are the ones who define right from wrong. At their best, they are simply saying, yes, Lord. At their best, they're just facing a a loyalty test and answering correctly because God is the one who, who makes the rules. And this simplifies things for me because that means I'm not the one who makes the rules. I'm not the one who gets to set the boundaries. I mean, back to the baseball analogy. Like, I may have gotten to the baseball field before you, but I don't own the field. I didn't create the game. I don't make the rules. I just got here a little bit sooner than some of y'all. See guys, I'm I'm simply a man under authority. Under the authority of the Word of God. Under the authority of the God of the Word. I have a Lord. And it's not me. So, like, here's where it simplifies our issues in life as, as we run up against people who want to define themselves. And who want to define right, from wrong by themselves, and our view on that because our view comes from the Bible, rubs them the wrong way, we can say, hey, please be gracious to me. I have a Lord. And it's not me. I have an authority and it's not me. Like, I answer to another. There is a definer of all things and it is Not me. So embracing this truth will simplify your life, but honestly, it will really also complicate it. Because here's the real rub. We want to be the definers. Like we want to set our own rules. We want to define the terms of the game, this life. And we want to even define ourselves. Like we live in an age of what has been termed expressive individualism, expressive individualism, this idea that, hey, this is who I am. Deal with it. In fact, strike that. Don't just deal with it. This is who I am. Celebrate it. Age of expressive individualism. The first time I heard that term, I think it was in a podcast about two or three years ago. Since then, I've read it in a number of blog posts and in some of the journals that I follow. Here's one good definition of it by a guy named Yuval Levin. His name makes him sound really smart, so I'm going to go with his definition. He says, that term, expressive individualism, suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. I get to set the path And I get to impose my definition on the rest of culture. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. Like expressive individualism asserts, I am the definer. He goes on to say, the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights, and it is given pride of place in our self-understanding." Can I just tell you, that statement is... is moral insanity. Like the assertion that I am the definer, I set the terms, of my own existence? How is that working out for you? Because if you get to set the terms of your existence, and I get to set the terms of my existence, what happens when we run into each other? But see, this has actually been codified into law by Justice Anthony Kennedy about 30 years ago. He wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of the human life. That's just nonsensical. But it's the law of the land. Bill Bennett called that sentence an open ended validation of subjectivism that will pave the way ahead for virtually anything, and so it has. Like the wheels are off the wagon. So understand, I want you to understand, this isn't simply an academic discussion, not just something we read in periodicals or with, with names attached to them like Justice Kennedy or uh, Yuval Levin or William Bennett. Like this is what we're hearing every day. It shows up in slogans like, hey, you be you, man. You be you. Have you heard that? You be you. Well, who else would I be? I am me, right? Or follow your heart. The worst advice ever. My heart is an idiot. My heart has gotten me in so much trouble. Follow your heart or find yourself. <laughs> but that's what we're doing. We're, we have a world filled with people, especially in the West, of those finding themselves. Be authentic. And by authentic, what they mean is define yourself yourself and live out of that definition, by the way, that ever-changing definition. Or do whatever it it takes to make you happy. And then, of course, the, uh, the first and greatest commandment of expressive individualism is this. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. It's time to see what I can do. To test the limits and break through, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. I'm the one. With, I'm one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand, and here I stay. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Y'all know that song. Your daughters and granddaughters sing that song, and yet it's the anthem of expressive individualism. Behind it is a worldview that is contrary to the worldview we get from the Scripture. So what does it look like to be unapologetically loyal to Christ in a world that asserts I get to define myself? I get to define my own rules. So what does it look like to be unapologetically loyal in a world like that? Well, it looks like this. First of all, you need to understand, it it, it may, to the world at least, look like hate. It may look like ignorance or intolerance or religious legalism. And guys, we need to make peace with that. Like if we're going to be unapologetically loyal to Christ, we need to make peace with that. Like anticipating the antagonism of our culture, C.S. Lewis wrote this, Jesus did not say, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite right. No. We're to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples. And so... We need to make peace, as I talked about in our first message, with being unpopular. Make peace with being a little bit yucky, depending on what the culture is saying about you at any given moment. And how do we do that? Well, by leaning into Romans eleven thirty-four to thirty-six, guys. God needs no counselor. God needs no advisor. God needs no help making commandments. God needs no one to come up alongside Him and help Him understand (laughs) like the way history is bending or being shaped by TikTok or those around us. God needs no counselor and He's not taking applications. And so for the church, for Christians, we need to understand and we need to truly believe That what God says about both self and sin is actually good news. Like we know that. Like we know that with our heads, but we need to believe that with our hearts that what God says about sin, what God says about self-identity is actually good news not just for us in this room, but it's good news for everyone in this world. Everyone who has been captured by the Spirit of the age. It's good news because, guys, you can't run from reality. Reality will always catch up and kick your butt. It just will. Like, you can deny reality, you can run from reality, but you're going to lose. Reality always, always wins. And you cannot escape shame and guilt. Like, you may deny God, the existence of God, any of the spiritual realities that we read about in the Bible. You can deny all of that but you're going to still have this echo in your heart like crying out, how can I find forgiveness? How can I be clean? How can I make peace with this? How can I move past this? You can't escape the guilt and shame of the choices that you're making. I mean, think about it. Fast forward just 50 years into the future. Like as our culture around us bows to expressive individualism, who will be left to blame for their unhappiness and the unhappiness of those who are simply being true to themselves? I mean, if all the voices in culture are agreeing with them, if the narrative of our culture is you be you and you be you and just don't kill each other, right? If that's the message of culture, and yet 50 years in the future, I still feel this weight of guilt and shame this sense of brokenness, something's just not right, who will I blame when everyone's affirming me? Like, who will I blame for my emptiness? Because the Scripture says you run after emptiness and you will be empty still. And so we can deny the existence of categories like sin and like evil, but it does not change the fact that God created a moral universe and... There are real consequences when we violate the categories of sin and evil. And so we can't escape guilt, we can't escape shame, and we can't escape death. And the fact that one day every one of us will stand before the sovereign one, the true definer of all things, including us. So if sin is a category that you've discarded... You still have to explain the brokenness of this world. If sin is a category that you've discarded, you still have to deal with that echo in your heart that's crying out, how can I be forgiven? I mean, everybody has that voice in their heart. Like placed there by God Himself, your your moral conscience, the Spirit of God speaking to you saying, this is wrong. And you can either try to turn the volume down by leaning more into your sin and hardening your heart against that voice, or you can turn it up and lean into the grace of God. This is what Paul Tripp says about sin in his latest and great book, Uh, Uh, Do You Believe? He writes, Sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend. Sin sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. Sin, sin is a grim reaper masquerading as a life giver. Sin is destruction masquerading as fulfillment. Sin is darkness masquerading as light. Sin is foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Sin is disease masquerading as a cure. Sin is a trap masquerading as a gift. No matter how it presents itself to you, sin is never what it appears to be, and you will never, and it will, and will never deliver what it promises. And so what do we do? Where do we find hope? If I left the message right then and just closed, you know, the book and moved on, it would be a bummer of a message. Like, if we have that cry in our hearts, that knowledge that we need somehow forgiveness, like, where is the hope? Well, in Psalm 51, a, broken and repentant king named David cries out for that hope. And I think it's a model prayer for all of us in confessing our sins. He cries out in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's key that He doesn't say according to my righteousness, Or according to the sacrifices I've made for you? I mean, as you read through the Old Testament, one thing that you'll discover is there is no sacrifice available for what's called high-handed sin. This purposeful rebellion against God, there's no way for that to be atoned for by the sacrificial system. And yet He cries out, have mercy according to your unfailing love according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash all of my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Like in these few short verses, David uses three terms to address what he's trying to confess. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. They all sound the same, but they just have a little bit of a difference to them, like the word iniquity. Iniquity is moral impurity. And so when David confesses his iniquity, this word alerts us to the fact that sin, all sin, is deeper than just our behavior. Before we act out our sin, it lives in our hearts. I mean, this points to the fact that sin is a condition. It's an inescapable state of being that causes us to rebel against God and against His authority. But it's in me before it's of me. Before you see it, it's there. Like I knew that I was a sinner, not because I was doing sinful things, but because I read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And I thought, ooh, eight brothers. I hate four of them. (laughs) Crap. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Now, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. But I had a lustful heart and a hateful heart. It was in me. And then the word transgression that he uses is moral rebellion. To transgress something is to knowingly and willingly cross boundaries that an authority other than you has set. Like when we transgress, we trespass into a place that God designed us not to go. Like that's, you don't cross this line. This is a line that I've set for you. And for you to stay on your side of the line is good. It's life. It's a blessing. And we knowingly and willingly cross that line. That's what it means to trespass. It's moral rebellion. It's high-handed rebellion. It's the kind of thing that there was no sacrifice for in the Old Testament. It's a rejection of God's authority. It's a rejection of His rules. It's a rejection of His definition for our lives. Transgression is being self-defined. It's Eve in the garden listening to the serpent. I will be like God? Hmm. Knowing good and evil, being able to decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. I mean, this transgression is you and I. Every moment of our life, we are transgressors. And then he uses the term sin. Sin is moral weakness. It's been defined as missing the mark. It's even greater than that. It's never being able to hit the mark. It's not even seeing the target. It's an inability to live up to God's holy standard. Like we've lost our ability to live as God has designed us to live. Tripp says, puts it this way in his book Sin has left us lame and limping. It has left us blind and deaf. It has left us irrational and foolish. It has left us sick and dying. We do not have the power to help ourselves. We cannot reverse sin's damage. And so guys, if all of that is true, what the Bible affirms about sin, how in the world is that good news to the sinner? I mean, moral rebellion, moral weakness, moral impurity... Like, how does a right, a correct, an orthodox doctrine of sin bring us hope? Not just hope for the ones in this room, but hope for the nations. Well, I just wrote down a few thoughts here. The first one is this. The correct doctrine, having a correct doctrine of sin levels the playing field. Guys, this definition of sin is not true simply for folks out there. The unwashed masses, right? It's true for each one of us. We are sinners. Like we are sinners before we sin. Like it's part of our nature. It's who we are. It's in our heart. It's in our bones. It's in our marrow. Every part of us is corrupted by the fall. And we are by nature children of wrath running from God, leaning into sin. So a correct doctrine of sin levels the playing field and it also identifies the true problem. It's me. And it's you. Which is actually really good news because I can't fix the culture. I can't change how I was raised. I can't change the parents who gave me birth. But you know what? By the grace of God, I can lean into grace. See, a correct doctrine of sin identifies the problem, but it also identifies the solution. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Tripp puts it this way, the doctrine of sin tells us that the hope of humanity will never be delivered by humanity, but will come only by means of God's intervening grace. Guys, the playing field is level and we all come to a point of forgiveness and grace the same way through the person and work of Christ. As a result, a correct doctrine of sin kills judgmentalism. Like we can't look at the messed up culture around us and say, what in the heck is wrong with those people? What in the heck is wrong with you? What in the heck is wrong with me? I know so much more truth than I live. What is wrong with me? And it creates a correct doctrine of sin. Creates a gracious people. Because we know that the world around us just needs Jesus just like we just need Jesus. He is the solution. And it brings us as a result inexpressible joy. Because we understand that guys, every temptation, every trial is an opportunity to believe the gospel all over again. Every failure of your standard or God's standard, every failure is an opportunity to believe the gospel all over again. God, I know You know more than I know, and though the world is saying this is the right path, The enemy is enticing me and saying this will be satisfying. I know that you know more than I know. And so I choose to lean into grace and lean away from sin. So here's the Gospel, guys, in five words. Because just like God defines Himself and defines the church and defines the followers of Christ, He defines love this way. God, man, sin, Jesus, faith. There is a God, the Maker, the Sovereign, the Creator, the Definer of all things who made a perfect world and made man and woman to be like this in a relationship with Him. But man chose to define himself. And as a result, that sin separated us from God. And we leaned away from God and grace and forgiveness and leaned toward rebellion. But God in His great mercy sent His one and only Son, God in the flesh, who on the cross bore our sins on the tree. He became you and I on the cross and was punished not by the Romans only, but by the Father. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Why are You so far from the words of my yearning? He bore the sins of the nations on Himself. He was buried and He rose again from the dead. And we can know that, but that's what we need to lean our lives into. Faith is simply saying, I need that to count for me because I'll never be able to clean up my act. I'll never be able to break the power of sin. I'll never be good enough. I know that Jesus was the righteous one for me and He was the substitute for me. That's the Gospel. Which, by the way, brings us to communion. So I step down here and invite the worship team to come forward. Every week when we come to this communion table, it's an opportunity to say once again, guys, here's the Gospel. Here's the Gospel displayed for us. The body and blood of Jesus sacrificed for us. Question 46 of the New City Catechism asks this question, what is the Lord's Supper? And it answers, Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of Him and His death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and With one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ and His Father in His Father's kingdom. Just ask that you take a moment and just bow your heads and close your eyes. The quietness of your heart. Ask God by His Spirit to show you if there is any hurtful way in you any sin that has not been confessed, any instance of self-defining that you have not laid at the feet of Jesus, or willingly and lovingly placed under His authority. Here's the good news, church. every time we fail is an opportunity to believe the gospel all over again. Not by works of righteousness, not by Your own resume, Your own goodness, Your religiosity, not by Your giving, not by Your sacrifice, not by Your promises to do better and Your resolutions that You make and fail, but by His grace You are saved. You are accepted. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and called His bride and His body and His family and His holy assembly. So, church, the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus had told his disciples, My body is true food, and my blood is true drink. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new, uh, the, the, the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of Him. Lord Jesus, thank You for grace, for giving us a definition of love that we can see and lean into and trust. We pray through Christ. Amen. Guys, in a world filled with people who are enslaved to the spirit of the age, who assert that I get to define myself and I get to define what is right and what is wrong for me, for a world that was never intended to bear the burden of such weight, the true definer of all things says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the message of the Gospel. That's what Jesus offers. If that's a new message for you or you want to figure it out, like know what that means, we're going to have elders and their wives down front, and we'd love to tell you how you can experience that kind of radical grace. But can I just tell you, anyone who leaves this morning with a smile on their face, you could ask them. Because you don't you don't hear a message about the brokenness and sinfulness of the world, and leave with a smile on your face unless you understand grace, unless you understand forgiveness, and unless you've experienced it for yourself. And so, church, God bless you. Let God define your life this week. God bless you.